Are you ready to study the scriptures? Yes or no? Okay, good. Um, let's get into it. I, uh, last week, I told you a little bit about the process of how my wife and I met. We met at college, and um, we went to a liberal arts university, a Christian liberal arts university that presented some interesting dynamics for us in Oklahoma. But um, today, I just want to tell you a little bit about the rest of the story. Because uh, I told you how we met, and I told you, I think, how she broke up with me, and I told you how I tricked her into actually getting back together with me. And if you missed that, you can go back on and hear it online. But, but the moment came. We'd been dating for quite a while. I don't know. It was a year or so. And, and it was, the time was now. What, is that me? I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm so rude. Uh, please excuse me. Um, we'll see if we can correct that. So, so I, I, the time had come. This is the one. I knew it. I was ready to propose to her. And so we made a plan. I was, it was my, la, my senior year of college, and we were at home. I was at home in Colorado for Christmas break. And uh, I got a job at the church there that, 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 that Christmas, and, and um, we kind of made plans. Okay, she's going to come because my brother, Brad, and his wife, they, they were going to get married on New Year's Eve. So New Year's Eve um, uh, on December 31st, 1999, right at the beginning of you know, the new, and so everyone's freaking out, you know, well, I'm glad you're getting married because the whole world's going to fall apart in 2000, if you remember that whole thing that happened, right? So... Anyway, um, Maria was going to come to that wedding, and so uh, she was at home in upstate New York, and I was in Colorado, and we made a plan. Let's do it. Let's do it, and we asked Brad and, and his, to, his wife-to-be, Andrea, if we, if we could propose at the reception. All right, so she, she is flying. She leaves New York, and she flies in the air. She's in the air, and I'm on the ground about to go to the wedding rehearsal for my brother, and I call her dad at that moment because I'm a good man. I gotta ask permission first, right? This is, this is important. By the way, if you're single, this is important. You gotta ask the dad. And so everyone's quiet, like, oh, really? I don't know. I should have should have did that. Uh, so now I probably I should have gotten on a plane. I should have gone to visit him. I should have done that kind of thing, but I, I didn't. I was a poor college kid. I didn't know what I was doing, so I called him. So I'm like, hey, Mr. Lina, um, you know, we've met a couple times. You know, I've been dating your daughter for a year, and I really love her. And blah, blah, blah. I'm don't know, I don't know what I said. I'm sure it was ridiculous. And so I give him my whole spiel and I say, so um, I wanted to ask you permission to marry your daughter. And this is what happened. <laughs> like that was literally the sound that came over the phone. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is not going to be good. Uh, and then he went into a 20-minute talk on how difficult marriage is and, and what you as a man need to do. And actually, it was really encouraging. I still think about that talk to this day. About 20 minutes. And then he finally said, and so I give you permission to marry my daughter. It was very slow. It was very slow. And so, so I was like, yes. And then he launched into 20 more minutes of a talk on marriage. And again, very, very good and very positive and very helpful. So I'm late to the rehearsal. So I, I drive. I'm freaking out. I'm so excited. I go to the rehearsal. The next night, we have the wedding. At the wedding reception, the church was also throwing a party because of the new millennium. And so they invited all the people in the church to come. So we had a wedding reception with about 2,000 people there. 
So there's 2,000 people in the room, and, and in the middle of it, the lights go out, and, and a spotlight hits me in the middle of the room, and I'm standing there, and I have a pillow, and I've got this glass slipper on the pillow, and the song from Cinderella starts playing, uh, so this is love, do, 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 so this is love, and everyone's like, what is going on right now? And so I walk up, and I stand on top of the stage, and I give this impassioned speech about this girl that I met, and have you seen her? I don't, I've been looking for her. I'm trying to find her. Now, my dad, if you've ever met my dad, he's down here sitting by Maria, and so I think he's confused, because he's like, over here! Hey, she's over here! I'm like, Dad, it's dramatic. I know, I know where she is. Thank you. And so while I've been talking, they put a chair behind me, and I bring Maria up, and I sit her in the chair, and I get down on one knee, and I take the slipper, and I put it on her foot. I bought it very large so that it would fit, and it, it fit because that's not what you want. Oh, crud. That's, like, that's a bad day. And so I fit it on her, and I opened up the ring, and I said, I love you. And I had like four lines. I had to memorize them because you got the quivery voice. If you've ever proposed, it's really terrible. <laughs> I love you so much. It's awful. So, so I, I proposed, and, she, and the funniest part was, she was the whole time she was looking at me like this. <laughs> so my brother Ross and the pastor of the church that we were working for, he was like, what have we done? We sent this poor kid to his doom in front of all these people. Like, this is terrible. This is terrible. She's going to say no. She was just in concentrating intently on my words. She said yes. We're like, oh my gosh, 2,000 people are screaming. There's fireworks going on the screen. Lights are going everywhere. We don't even know what to do. In fact, the pastor had to say, well, stand up and kiss her. So I was like, oh yeah, let's do that. And so we kissed and we've been married 18 years ever since and it's been fantastic. Thank you. Let's pray. Just kidding. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, this is right on the edge of when proposals got ridiculous, right? So now you have to have like planes flying over and stuff like that. It's terrible, but don't feel the pressure to do that. Um, and then we got married, and, and it's, it, it really has been wonderful. It's been a little bit challenging. I mean, what happens when you get married is everything really changes. I mean, your life really changes. <laughs> and if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I want to talk a little bit about this today because we're in this series called Real Relationships, and we're just trying to figure out how do we live all the relationships that we have in the way of Jesus? Because I think the truth is your spiritual life and your relational life, they're, they're closely connected. Jesus was asked if he could kind of summarize the whole idea that we read in the scriptures. And he said, I can, I can, I can do that. I can do it by just saying, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you got to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think you could say that kind of like this to maybe help us. You could say, you can't love God effectively without loving people. And you can't love people effectively without loving God. Those two things are interconnected, forever linked. And so we're trying to dig into all this because you know when your relationships are good, life is good. When your relationships are bad, life is really terrible. It's just awful. And we're trying to correct some of that. So there's this chapter in the Bible that gets read at most weddings. You probably, most of you know it, though a lot of us have trouble seemingly uh, living it out day to day. And it's called the love chapter. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I think that love is something that we fail to understand a lot of the time. We're just confused about it. And it's because English doesn't do a great job of helping us. Like our language makes it a little bit challenging, I think. Like, think about it, because you'll say, oh, I love my wife. I love her. She is wonderful, and I, I'm in love. I love my wife, and I love pizza. I love pizza. I so love, I love, I love naps. 
I love naps on Sunday. Like, I love those things, right? I, I, I don't love those things to the same degree, right? It's not, that's not really a helpful word. It lacks in some ways. Or you think about it in this way. People often say, oh, and it was so, and we fell in love. We fell in love. Like, I'm just, I'm kind of cruising along and, oh, oh, I'm in love with you. Like, it's like it's a ditch or something. And it's, love is not a ditch. That's not how it works. Or even worse, in my opinion, we say, oh, Oh, I fell out of love. I was just walking along, and, and all of a sudden, oops, oops, I fell out. Sorry, this is over. Right? It, it doesn't work that way. And so we don't want to fall in love. We want to learn what love really is. And we want to live a love that will last, especially when it comes to our marriages. We talked about being single last week, and we're going to talk about marriage today. And, but I think no matter what status you have today, I think you'll find some things that will be helpful to you. So that chapter is 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to start in verse 7, and it says, talking about love, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, that's great, but nobody can do that. Nobody can actually make that happen, and you would be right, actually. If you try to do it yourself, you won't be able to do it. But if you'll surrender your life fully to Jesus, you'll find that you can do so much more than you ever thought possible, including loving people like this. Wow. For effect. For dramatic effect. We'll give this another minute or two, and then we'll switch. And then we'll switch if it happens again, okay? All right? Everybody okay? You with me? Yeah. All right. That's, I'm scaring you into it, so it's good. Um, Maria and I, we've been married for 18 years. Okay. Can you, yeah, hand me that, Zachary. Everyone talk amongst yourselves. Just kidding. <laughs> Maria and I have been married for 18 years now, and, uh, and it has been challenging in some seasons. And it's been wonderful in some seasons. We've had some great seasons. But if you were to sit down with both of us over the 18 years that we've been married, and we just talked about some of the things that we've learned, I want to tell you some of those things today. I want to give you just a little bit of help. And I think that it will not just help your marriage if you're married, but I think it will help make every relationship better. So the first thing that we would say if we sat down is we would say, if you want strong relationships, you've got to make a covenant commitment with the other person. A covenant commitment. I'm going to come back to this in a second, so I'm not going to say a lot here, but commitment is an interesting word, isn't it? I think commitment is a great word because everybody values it. Everybody would say, oh yeah, it's really important. Everybody would say, I want to live my life with great commitment. That's a great word, although some people might be a little bit scared of it. Young single men, actually, most of the time, unfortunately. Just a little, just a little dig for you. Um, but you only need commitment when you don't want to do something. Like, if you like doing something, you don't actually need commitment for it. So, for instance, if you love to eat healthy, like, for whatever reason you think that weird little green miniature trees are tasty, you don't need to make a commitment to eating. I don't understand you, but we can still be friends. It doesn't make sense to me, but it's okay. But if you like eating that way, oh, it makes me feel so good. You don't have to have a commitment to it. I don't like it. I think it's gross. I think that cauliflower is one of the nastiest things ever invented by the Lord himself. Sorry. It's just weird, and it smells like bad things. I'm not a fan of it. Um, if you go to the gym, if you love going to the gym, I just love working out. I was talking to somebody this week who said, I get up at 3.30, and I go work out. And I'm like, you're insane. That person's actually in here today. That's crazy to me. But 
She loves it, and so she goes and does that every day. I, I think it's fantastic. I, I need a commitment if I'm going to go work out. To me, the best part of working out is leaving the gym. Like, that's awesome. I love that moment every time, as if I've been to the gym. That's funny. Um, commitment is only necessary for the things that you don't like, which assumes, then, that there will be days in your marriage where you don't like what you're doing. Oh, yeah. The newlyweds over there are just like, oh, heck, yeah. There will be days when you don't like the person that you're married to and that you're living with. But here's the thing, everybody. You can't have great relationships in your life at all until you commit to them. You can't have great relationships until you commit to them. That's why I think you'll never have a great marriage until you just decide together that we're taking divorce off the table. Like, that's not even a thing that we'll consider. I knew with Maria, we had that conversation before we got married. I'm the product of a divorced family, and it hurt me so much when I was young. I'm, I'm not interested. I'm not going down that road. It's off the table for me. And we had that discussion, and she said to me, divorce is not an option for me. I'm, I'm, I'm just removing that as an option from my life. And you know what? It has meant that we have had some safety and security and can have complete honesty and openness and intimacy because we know that we're both committed. Now, I know there's different situations. I know sometimes you can't control that. I get that. But you can control your part. You can control your part of this covenant commitment. And I think until you do, you won't know the power of what relationship can really have. You won't know the level of safety until you decide, I'm going to commit to it. So you're going to make a covenant commitment. You all right so far? All right, the second thing I think you've got to do is learn how to celebrate differences. You've got to celebrate your differences because I don't know if you realize this yet, but men and women are quite a bit different. Like, we just, we're just pretty much different in every way, by God's design, actually. And I, Maria and I are very different people. And so right here, I just want to dispel this compatibility myth because people will say, yeah, we're just not compatible anymore. Like, we just kind of lost it. We're not, we're not compatible. Listen, here's the truth. You don't need to be married to you. You don't need to be married to somebody who's like you. Like, we've got one of you, and I promise you, it's enough. You're great, but we don't need another one. You're plenty. So we don't need anymore. All of us, by ourselves, we're incomplete, and we need other people to help make us complete. You need that other person. Even if you're single, you need other people around you to help you be complete. And most importantly, we need Jesus to help us be complete. He's the only one that can do it. So it's opposites that make for a dynamic and healthy marriage. You shouldn't look for somebody that's just like you. Look for somebody that's different than you. Maria and I are so different. If you know the DISC profile, if you've ever taken that test, um, all of you who are in Catalyst, you have. I'm an ISD, actually. The last time I took it, I had more D. I guess pastoring a church has made me more mean. But um, <laughs> there's, there's so much to say about that right there. <laughs> My wife is an SC. And so if you're not familiar with that, that means I'm an I, which means I like to be around people. Uh, I like parties. I love that kind of stuff. My wife, not necessarily. She likes to be in the background. My wife likes to make lists. I like to see what happens. Like that's the way that I like to live. I, if you know the Enneagram, I, I'm a three, which means I'm a performer, achiever. And she is a five. She's a perfectionist. Isn't that what they call it? She said more like a thinker. Well, of course you say that. And that makes a lot of sense. 
she needs input and, all, and I just, I just want to, I just want to be with people and I just want to look successful and all this crazy stuff. Like we, we are just different people. We have way different personalities. When I'm hot, she's cold. When I want to spend money, she wants to save, which is pretty much all the time for both of us. Right, when, when we're, we're working through that, everybody. Uh, when Maria wants to discipline the kids, I'm like, oh, they're, it's great. It's fine. It, they'll be fine. And vice versa. She wants to go outside and be in nature. I want to sit in here and eat popcorn and watch a movie. Like that's, that's she, we got married and I was like, ooh, what is it? What is this out here? It's called nature. Wow, it's really neat. Let's go inside. Um, <laughs> she's brought something great to my life. She hates being on stage. I kind of thrive on it. So you've got these differences in your life and your marriage and your relationships. And what are you going to do with them? Well, you can, you can reject them. Oh, I'm so sick of this. I'm sick of the way you do that. I'm sick of your, I'm sick of that. You can do that. You could tolerate them, but that never works for very long. You tolerate for a little while, but then eventually if you're tolerating, you're going to reject them. Or you can decide that I'm going to celebrate them. I'm going to celebrate it. She wants to draw me outside. She wants to pull me away from Netflix and the movie that I'm watching and go outside. And I've discovered a whole new life of hiking and this thing that's called exercise. What's it called? Exercise. I've learned this thing. It's really fun. And so she's added a great deal to my life. At first, when we got married, I was like, ugh, you want to go walk and look at trees? That sounds terrible. But I learned to celebrate that part of her, and now she's brought something amazing to my life. And I've added movies to her life, which have done her absolutely no good at all. But <laughs> you give and take. It's really important, everybody, for you to understand that your personalities are different. We take everything so personal. It's a wound. It's, it's so personal to me. But in reality, what it is, it's just a different personality. And you can learn to celebrate those things. Celebrate becoming a complete package. Celebrate iron sharpening iron. Celebrate what God is doing as you kind of work off of each other. The third thing that we would say to you is, it's so important that you work on your communication, you got to work on it. We, man, we work on it everywhere. You work, it, you work on your communication when you go to work with your employers. You work on it with um, your fellow employees. Like You're always working on it. You'll even work on it with your friends. I work on it with the staff team here at the church. I work on it with a team one, our volunteer team. I'm working on it right now as I'm standing here talking to you. We work on it all the time, but not necessarily with the people who are closest to us who matter the most. We don't think about working on communication with our spouse. Do you know, studies have shown that the average couple spends four minutes a day in meaningful conversation. Like, they'll talk to one another, but meaningful conversation about four minutes a day, and everybody, that's not enough. You've probably heard some of the stats that say, women have about 30,000 words a day that they'll kind of need to use. And men have, I think it's about 15,000 words a day that they'll need to use. So men come home and they don't want to talk anymore because they use them all up. But she has been with kids all day, so she's got a lot left. And she wants to tell you all about them. Now, in our lives, it's a little bit different. We're actually kind of reversed. Maria probably has about 8,000 words, really. And I have, well, I have a lot. <laughs> I have a lot of words. I leave a coffee pastoral appointment and I'm driving back to the office and I'm like, I'm going to call my wife and just chat. And she's trying to school the kids and do stuff at home. And she's like, what? <laughs> just wanted to talk. I have three minutes in the car. It's ridiculous. But we do make time. We make time to sit down and talk. We make time to connect. We make time to sit down and talk about our marriage and talk about our kids and how are our kids doing and what do we need to do and talk about our finances and talk about just how we're doing communication. It's critical, everybody. 
It's critical and you've got to work on it. Guys, let me help you with this just a little bit. Because historically, not in my life, but historically, guys are the ones who this is challenging for. So I'm going to give you the four most romantic words in the world that will help you with your communication. Are you ready? You're going to want to write these down. The four most romantic words in the world. And then what happened? (laughs) Try it. And then what happened? Now, it's the opposite for Maria and I. When she says that to me, I'm like, "Ah, I love you so much. The fourth thing that we would say is kind of ties into this idea, and it is that you got to feed the romance, everybody. You got to feed it. Like, you got to stoke the fire of romance in your life. And you know why you got to do that? Because it all burns out. It burns out and it goes away. That passion, that fire, it does over time, it goes out. Some people say, yeah, but we just, man, we don't have what we used to have. We just, well, of course you don't. You know what you do have? You got kids. And they just suck it right out of you. <laughs> you've, got, you've, got, you've got jobs, you've got bills, you've got all this stuff that you've got to do, and it's kind of taking it all out. Look, here's the thing. It's not the fireplace's fault that there's no fire in it. Yes, it is. It's not the fireplace's fault. It's yours. You got to go out and you got to chop down some logs. You got to bring the logs in. You got to put them in the fireplace. You got to get a little kindling. You got to put it in there. You got to light some matches. You got to put it in there. You got to kind of work it. You got you to gotta stoke that fire. You got to attend to it. You got to make sure. You got to blow on. You got to wave your hands. You got you to get it. Ooh, it's getting hot in here. Is it just me? I'm telling you what. You got you to gotta, you gotta work on it. You've got to f- stoke the fire of romance in your relationship and it'll burn. And then it'll die out again. And then you got to do it again. And that's by God's design. Your love relationship starts to die down as well. Look, for some of you, the last time you said, hey, turn out the lights, lock the door, was when his parents drove up in the driveway. Yeah. That's funny. I don't care. That's, that's... What I think you should do is find out what romance means to them. Find out what it means to them. For some of you guys, you think romance is, hey, uh, it's not romantic. It's not, it's not helpful. How are you doing? That's, that's, not, that's not helpful for anybody. What is romance to her? What's romance to him? And have you ever asked that question? Have you ever talked about it? Like, that, that, that's, I think that's going to help you on your communication as well. Like, for Maria, romance, she's, she's, her love language is acts of service. So when I serve her in some way, that's helpful to her. That encourages her. That's a blessing for her. And so I'll just say, hey, hey, um, hey why don't you go sit down? Can I, can I bring you some cookies? Can I make you some coffee? Let me bring you some coffee and cookies. You just have, take, your, take, take a load off. Sit down. Put your feet up. Or after dinner, I'll say, hey, st- hey, you know what? Why don't you just go and sit down? Go read a book. Go do something. Go relax. You've been working hard all day. Let me, let me take care of the dishes. I'll, I'll do the dishes. I'll have the kids do the dishes with me. We'll, we'll take care of it. You go do nothing. Right? And then, then I'm washing the sink. I'm washing the sink, and, and she'll walk by, and she'll see me washing the sink, and she'll be like, oh. And I'm like, that was TMI. Thankfully, we only have podcasts here. We don't actually have video, so you can do things like that. And I'm not going to do that the second service. Um, (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? You got to put some logs on the fire. Have the conversation. Ask about it. Talk about what it means. 
don't let your feelings drive this process. Don't let your feeling, how you feel, because how you feel will always change. You gotta make plans and actually be very intentional about this idea. So just make some choices to constantly feed that fire regardless of how you feel. The fifth thing we would say is just to put Jesus at the center of it all. That's not a surprise to you. I'm a pastor. You expect me to say this. And of course, we believe this is true for every area of your life. But here's the reality. If you're going to leave God out of the process of something that he created, it's going to fail. Like if you keep God out of it and you don't think to involve him, you're not going to be able to do it. Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. In other words, unless God is involved in the building, it's just going to crash and burn. It's not going to work. Couples desire this intimacy in their marriage without actively involving God in the process. You've got to let the inventor of the thing be involved in the process of what you're doing. Let the inventor be involved in the process that he created, which means you don't just get to do this your own way. You don't get to just do this however you want to do it. Your marriage is bound to fail if you try to define the relationship on your own terms. If you just try to make it up and gut it out, you won't be able to do it. You've got to let God in, the one who designed it. Let him in. Let him speak to the process. Let his word define what your marriage or what your relationship will look like. And then God defines it with a word that we're not exactly used to. He defines it with the word covenant. He defines it with this amazing word called covenant. He says, make a covenant commitment, not a casual commitment to one another, not a convenient commitment to one another. And this is not very popular in our our culture anymore. What we like is casual commitment. What we like is something that's convenient for us, not something that costs us. But a covenant is a level of relationship that God will define. Listen to Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. He says, another thing you do, you flood the, the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. He's saying here, look, you're, you're here at the altar, at the church. You're here crying. You're upset, and you're not far from God. You're actually a believer in God, but he is not pleased with the way that you've been acting. And so you're here weeping at the altar, crying and with tears day in, day out. And then the next verse, he says, you ask why? You want to know why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage, covenant. There's that word, covenant. She's the wife of your marriage, covenant. God's watching. He's watching how we've defined relationships. He's watching and seeing how we've defined relationships with our spouse and that we've defined them on our own terms. He says, you're not doing this my way. You're not doing it the way that I've created it to be done. You're doing it yours. You can think you can do whatever you want and it's no big deal, but it's not true. Living your life contrary to the way that God designed, it will always ultimately fail. But even in the midst of all that, as God always does, he's still looking out for you. In verse 15, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and don't be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. He says, when you define your relationships on your own terms, when you do it contrary to the way that I designed it, it affects everyone around you, it affects every relationship, and it especially affects your kids. And he wants those families to be strong and healthy and powerful. In verse 16, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. Says the Lord Almighty, So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. 
All of us need this. All of us need the moment where instead of doing harm, we protect. Instead of harm being done to us, we protect. This is what our relationships are. This is what our marriage relationship is. In that moment when you thought, I have had enough of this. I have had enough of you. I'm so sick of this. In that day when you have one of the worst days, you need something that's greater than you that will anchor you to that relationship, that will keep you from bailing, that will keep you from taking off. When you need God the most is in that moment where things are at their worst and you need him to show up. You need the covenant to kick in because on your worst day, you've got to have something else besides you that's going to take over. Not your emotions, which is what we typically do. My emotions take over. I leave, slam the door. That might be it. Or just whatever's going on at the moment. And everybody, you can do this because this is the kind of relationship that Jesus is willing to have with each and every one of us. A covenant relationship with us. He defines it again this way at the Last Supper before he goes to the cross in Luke 22. He says, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He said, covenant. He said, blood. My blood covenant. It's this deep theological idea. But essentially, the way that we would say it is, the best relationships that we have, the best relationships that are possible are the ones with people that we consider blood. Blood relationships. Isn't it? Have you ever noticed it? Like, like you, 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 you defend your blood over everybody else. You just defend them. Even, even, if, even if they're not the greatest, you tend to defend them. And even though you smack them around and you yell at them and you insult them, you can't stand them, and then somebody else says something bad about them, oh, you can't talk to them, like, you can't say that about them. Because you've got this thing, you've got this connection with them. We have three step-siblings in our family. So Ross and Brad and I were Parsleys, and then we had the Pinell family join when my dad got remarried after the divorce. And so, so we've got Jeff, Eric, and Lori, and so we grew up with step-siblings, and so we always said, well, blood is thicker than step. Did really good for our family dynamics. Um, <laughs> of course, we were kidding when we said that, but you, you understand because you're kind of like this, and you'd go to the ends of the earth for your kids. You would. Even when they're being boneheads, you go to the ends of the earth for your kids, but not always for your spouse. Because a spouse is not blood. A spouse is somebody that we just kind of, we chose. So it's maybe even more disposable. Not my kids, though. I'll go to the ends of the earth because of this blood relationship. I can't separate myself. And God is saying, that is how you should define every relationship that matters. Every relationship that matters in your life should be treated like this, but especially your marriage. I think this is how God sees you. You're not disposable. He's going to be faithful to you even when you're a bonehead. I've seen it in my life over and over and over again. And this is what God calls every marriage to. Because you're going to have bad days. They're going to come. And that covenant will get you through it. Even if you're not married and you're single, you can make a commitment to your friends. Rather than bailing when they're kind of jerks, you decide, I'm going to work this through. We're going to do this together. I'm making a commitment to you. And you find safety and security in that relationship. So let's just talk about this as we close here really quick. I want to tell you the difference between like a contract and a covenant because most of us, we handle our relationships as if they were contracts. When it comes to contracts, they're based on mutual distrust. We write a contract because we don't trust the other person. There's no language in a contract that talks about your faithfulness. Contracts talk about how much trouble you're going to be in if you don't live up to your end of the bargain. 
That's what a contract is for. They're in to ensure that I'm going to be taken care of if you fail. And I think that's how many of us see our relationships. You mess this up, I want you to know I'm out because you didn't live up to the terms of the contract. And he's saying, no, that's actually not the what I want you to do. I want you to have a covenant. A covenant is based on mutual commitment. Where a contract is based on mutual distrust, a covenant is based on mutual commitment. A commitment means I'm willing to be unhappy as we work this out. We're going to work this out, and it's hard, and it's rough, it's difficult, but I'm committed to doing it. That's not how most of us think of relationships today. Well, I'm not happy. Well, it must not be God's will. You've heard the term, God is, in marriage, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. I buy that, but actually, I think you can have both. <laughs> I think marriage is to help sharpen you and make you more holy, but I think you can have the greatest time doing it if you'll just decide, I'm gonna surrender. I'm gonna make a covenant commitment. In marriage, we say in the ceremony, till death do us part. There's only one term to marriage. We're together until one of us is dead. Like, that, that's it. One term. I'm not leaving you unless one of us dies. I'm not gonna divorce you. Apparently, I could probably kill you, but I'm not gonna divorce you. Lord, mercy. Uh, it's the only condition to this covenant. We gotta go a little faster. Contracts, they protect rights and shirk responsibility. It protects me. It says, I, I, I don't have a lot of responsibilities here. What I'm mostly concerned about is what you do. I'm concerned about your responsibilities. Are you gonna do the right thing and treat me well? But instead of that covenant, it surrenders rights and it assumes responsibility. It says, I'm coming into this thing to serve you. No matter what I get in return, I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to serve you even if you don't reciprocate. I'm going to lay everything down. And you'd say, that just sounds crazy. I mean, don't they have, yeah, sure, maybe. But you know what? This is exactly what Jesus did for you and me. How much are you really able to offer the king of everything and the creator of all? <laughs> Not a lot. He said, I'm coming, I'm coming to serve you. I'm coming to lay my life down for you, even while you were still sinners. Contracts have personal convenience in mind. I want this to be as easy as possible. I don't want to have a lot of stress in this relationship. So if it becomes inconvenient, you're out. Covenant has the interest of the other person in mind. It says, I'm just thinking about you. In marriage, I'm just thinking about you. When it comes to the kids, I'm just thinking about you. When it, comes to, uh, the, when it comes to the kitchen, I, I'm, just, I'm thinking about you. Let me do the dishes. When it comes to the bedroom, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about you first. In everything, I'm thinking about you. The greatest relationship in the world is when two servants get married. The worst possible relationship in the world is when two masters get married. All right. And look, I get it. It doesn't always feel good. And it's never very simple or easy, but we just can't think of our relationships through the lens of convenience or we're just gonna fail. We've gotta let the power of God work through our relationships and it won't always be convenient. So you're like, okay, Brent, great. That's great. That's, I, I love it. You know what? I even think I agree with you, but uh, it's not doable. I can't do this. And you're right. You can't do it if you do it on your own. But a couple things that I think will fuel all of this, everything that we just talked about, all of it, if you want fuel for it, I think there's two things that you can do. And you'll have to try it out before you see if it actually works. But if you do these two things, if you'll realize these two things, I think you can have some incredible relationships and you will be the beneficiary of some great stuff. The first one is, and you know it, I think, love's not a feeling, it's a choice. 
It's not a feeling. There are feelings involved, but love is not a feeling. It's a choice. I'm always amazed when people qualify the behavior in their life just based on how they feel. I didn't feel like it. You know, if I lived by my feelings, I wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> if, if I lived by my feelings, there are days when I wouldn't be the pastor of this church. That wouldn't happen. Uh, if I lived by my feelings, there would be days when I didn't have kids. Like, oh, don't look at me like that. You feel exactly the same way. You monster! <laughs> Give me a break. We can't live by feelings. They're not trustworthy. Love is a choice. And love doesn't just give the person what they deserve. Instead, love always gives them whatever it is they need at the time. And that may not even be fair to you. But it lays down its life for the other person. I know how I feel. I know what I want to do to you right now. But I'm not going to. I'm going to treat you differently. Colossians 3.14 says, And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In other words, this is something that you, you got to put on. You put it on every day. And when you do, it binds all of the other virtues together. It's the strongest. Look, I think that the greatest definition of love is, love is living for the good of someone else with no thought as to what you will get in return. If you can arrive at that place, you can have some incredible relationships. Come on, man. Come on. That, you're setting the bar pretty high here, bro. I mean, that, this is, that's, like, that's really hard stuff. It is. But I found through my life that when I make the right choices, it brings about the right emotions. When I do the right things, when I act the right way, when I decide I'm just going to lay my life down and I'm going to do the right thing and take care of the people that I love in my life, I find that all the emotions that sometimes I feel are lacking, I find that they follow. And we can't forget this is the way that Jesus has given his life for us. So everybody, don't, li don't lead by your feelings. Lead by choice and choose love. And the final thing, we're gonna go. The capacity to love somebody comes from receiving love yourself. The capacity to love someone, it comes from receiving love first yourself. You may not have received the kind of love that I'm talking about from your parents or from your family. You may not have grown up with the kind of love that I'm talking about. And so your relationships so far, all of them, you've been trying to live out of some sort of contract. And in all your relationships, you've kind of developed opt-out clauses wherever you can. And I understand how that happens, but I'm telling you, you can live with so much more. Here's what 1 John 4.19 says, we love each other because he loved us first. We have the ability to love one another because we have been loved first by God. He loved you first. And as you receive that love, as you actually open up your heart and life and receive it, then you can start to love others. Yeah, but that's, I know. But listen, they were spitting on him as he was walking to the cross. Spitting on him, slapping him. And you know what he was doing? He was forgiving them. They nailed him to a cross, and as they're nailing him to a cross, he's forgiving them. The love that he has is astounding. And he treats me the same way that he treated them. When I'm an idiot, when I'm a bonehead, when I fall short, when I make mistakes, when I'm foolish, when I fail, when I make a mistake in my marriage, when I when I'm a jerk to her when, and that happens, <laughs> he loves me. 
He forgives me. He's already willing to forgive. So just close your eyes for a second, and I just want you to stop. I just, just for a moment, I just want you to stop, and I want you to think about how much God loves you. Think about all the times when you've been foolish, and think about the love that's been extended to you. And maybe that's foreign to you. And if it is, I want to encourage you today to open up your heart and life and receive it because it's real. He loves you. God loves you. And he loved you enough to send his one and only son, part of himself, into the world. God himself coming into the world to die on a cross, to be buried in a tomb and come back three days later, defeating sin and death just so you could be restored to relationship with him. He paid the bill for all of your sin. He paid the bill for all of your relational foolishness. He paid the bill for every bit of your rebellion. And he did it so that you wouldn't have to. I just wanna pray this prayer over you from Ephesians 3, verse 17. And I just want you to receive it today. I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts, living with you as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you be able to feel and understand, as all God's children should, how long, how wide, how deep, and how high his love really is. And experience this love for yourselves. I want you to feel that love. I want you to understand that love. I want you to experience that kind of love. And so I'm calling us today as a church to renew our commitment to our marriages, to renew our commitment to friendships. And look, if you've had a failed marriage, I get that life goes the other way sometimes. Don't look back, just look forward. Just be healed in Jesus' name. Receive forgiveness in life. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's look ahead to better days. But for the rest of us, I just want us to say, I'm gonna enter into these kind of covenant commitments. I'm gonna enter into it with, in my marriage. I'm gonna enter into it with my kids. I'm gonna enter into it with my church. I'm gonna commit actually to being a part of the body. I'm gonna enter into it with my friends. So Father, all over this room today, I pray that you would pour this out on us and that you would help us that you would draw us forward in you, that you would help us to learn what it means to receive the love that you've given. And that through that, we'd be able to have the love of Christ grow in our hearts and extend it to people. To learn to live with surrender, to learn to live without selfishness, to learn to give ourselves over completely and solely to you. Help us in Jesus' name.